You may well be aware that in recent years, in sort of public theological circles, there's been a lot of books and articles and debate about God. You've come across all these books that go under the title The New Atheism, lots of concern. We've seen things in the popular press regarding responses to Haiti. And in the middle of all of this questioning about God is the question of evil, the question of human suffering and why people suffer. And one author published a book last year, a professor at Chapel Hill called Bart Ehrman, published a book called God's Problem, uh, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. And he tells about how he started life in a very conservative evangelical theological framework and grew and changed. And as he grew and changed, this, this question about evil became for him the question of faith. He couldn't answer it. There wasn't an answer. And he now describes himself uh, as an agnostic at best. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to church. And he looked at all of the traditional ways in which people of faith have tried to address human suffering. Um, and, and the sort of thing he looked at is the sort of thing that we heard not too long ago from Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson is a graduate of the Yale Divinity School, and whatever else he is, he is not stupid. And he talked about Haiti and blamed it as talked about as a judgment, God's judgment on the people of Haiti. And that's something he's done over and over, and he's in a long-standing, profound theological tradition that says suffering is a result of sin. It's not a tradition that I go with or agree with, but it's in there. It's in the Bible. And Bart Ehrman looks at that kind of tradition and says, that is not a God worthy of worship. That kind of God is not worthy of worship. You can't defend God in the face of suffering, even if you want to call it judgment. Nearly 30 years ago uh, now, a Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book. It wasn't purporting to answer the theological question. It was a pastorally sensitive book when... Uh, when bad things happen to good people. And some of you have read that book, and if you've read it, you get the sense that God, in his view, is a sort of absentee landlord, someone who sets things in motion and then watches and then cares about what happens uh, as the consequences of creation work themselves out. And, and Bart Ehrman looks at that kind of idea of God as a way of addressing suffering, and he finds that unacceptable too, and, and, and many others. I'm, I'm waiting for the much more difficult sequel uh, when good things happen to bad people. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a serious theological challenge there. <clears throat> but he, but he, he knocks it out. Now, I'm not going to solve the problem of evil and human suffering. This is a promise I can keep. I will not solve it in the next five or ten minutes. But I do want to share... Something of, because it's so in front of us all the time, I, I want to share something about how I address that at this point in my life. And I found that it came back to me as I was rereading this marvelous, marvelous story of the call of Isaiah, the call of the prophet. He's a temple prophet. He's sort of like a professional prophet. He's in the, in the temple, and I imagine him in prayer, and he has one of those profound experiences of the divine, of the, of the whole company of heaven surrounding him, the kind of transcendent experience of the might and the majesty and the mystery of God that I have had points in my life, and I know many of you have, and I pray that everyone has it. Sometimes it looks to me as though not everybody is granted that kind of bedrock experience of divinity. I want these children we're baptizing to have that at some point. 
And I wonder if it's just we're not granted it or if we don't notice or if, we're not, uh, if our eyes and our hearts aren't attentive to that possibility. But what happens with Isaiah is he has that profound experience of the reality, the unquestionable reality of God's grace and God's love. And he's in the temple praying, probably. And along the sides, along the sides of the temple, these troughs with, with coals in, in the, in the prayer section, the incense would be burning on it. And the incense would be reminding the people of how they were led by grace in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by, by day and the pillar of fire by night. And the smoke would have, would have been going. And, and Isaiah has this, this experience in his first Experience as is often true in the presence of God is, I am not God. I, am, I have unclean lips. It's rather like Peter in the boat in the lake near Gennesaret. And his first response to the extraordinary, powerful grace of God is, Oh my God, I'm not. It's, it, this can't be. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I am not God. And that's, that's, that's really what repentance is ultimately, is, is recognizing who we are not in the face of this extraordinary, powerful Love And so I can imagine Isaiah going to this incense, which had the secondary and salutary effect of, of covering up the odor of the abattoir, because the temple was really a, uh, had the stench of sacrifice. That's what its business was, was killing animals. And so the, the incense was useful. And I can see him sort of plunging his lips to, the, to one of these burning coals, in the, uh, almost unhinged in the, <clears throat> in the presence of the divinity. And and. and He's had an experience that is bedrock. It means everything else he thinks is in the context of the knowledge, the sure and certain knowledge of God's power and, and grace and personal interest in him. Who, who can I send? Who can we send? Send me, says Isaiah. And he's remembering his call from later. Later in his life, he's telling the story. And one of the things he's learned later in the life with all his prophecy, mostly of doom, said doom is coming, the people did not listen. So he remembers that they were dumb and deaf and blinded to this reality that, that, that suffering and destruction was going to come and he was going to have to keep speaking until there's nothing but a stump left in the, and the city is laid desolate. And, and he, he does all of this and proclaims all of this with the profound sense that the God who is real holds within God's purview all that is and all that is not God, good and evil Suffering, plague, pestilence, famine, earthquake, disaster. Now he would be more, Isaiah would be more with Pat Robertson here. He'd more like to say the suffering would be a result of the people's failing to keep the covenant. He would see the judgment in the disaster as a direct consequence of judgment on the sinful people who will suffer the consequence. That's a little problematic because it turns out it's not the same generation very often who suffer the consequences of sin. So the whole tradition builds up of children paying for the sins of their, their ancestors. I don't think we have to go there to say all that is is within the purview of God's love and God's grace. We can even see disaster and suffering as, as in some sense a judgment, one that calls everyone, not just the people who suffer, in fact, perhaps especially not the people who suffer, but calls everyone to re-examine what really matters and what's really important can have that, that effect of being, being a judgment, these, these disasters. But where, where I come out is saying first that I know God to be real. And I know God's love to be real. And, and there are times when I imagine, like Isaiah, I doubt my sanity. And I wonder and I read things that tell me it's just synapses in my brain and 
all of this sort of stuff. But when all is said and done, I keep coming back to that fundamental reality of God's absolute love and grace, even when I'm not particularly feeling it at any given time. And then I say, well, it's all within God's purview. Some of you remember Beth Royalty, who was on the staff here, used to say quite often that God doesn't cause bad things, but God's very interested in what we do with them. And where I, where I come out is saying God doesn't cause bad things, but God desires to bring good out of all of them, even transformative good, even out of the cross, which seems to be the heart of what we're about. God can transform for us all of these terrible things. The, there's a sense in which there's not a point I can't go into talking about cause and effect, that God made this happen in order that this comes about. And the reason for that is that it seems that all time is accessible to God at once. God is, in a sense, outside of time. And I realize that brings little shutters down in some of your brains when I go there. But, but it's, 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 it's to say that past, present, and future are our experience and our context and our way of working things out. But that to God, it's all about the moment, in a sense, the response, the relationship, the compassion that is stirred, the way we treat one another in good times and bad times, in all circumstances, give thanks, we are enjoined. And it seems to me possible, even in the face of the most horrendous suffering, watching someone die too young, or seeing a population devastated, even there, what is important is God's love and how we respond to God and to one another out of that sure and certain affection, uh, sure and certain knowledge we have of God's abundant grace. Now, I offer this not as the solution to the world's problems, but as a reminder that theologians need to pray and, and remember all the time when we're asking questions about whether God's defensible in the face of evil, that, that we're in that relationship, that we keep practicing what is important, turning our hearts and turning our minds to God. We just prayed in that wonderful hymn, Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forswear, forgive our foolish ways, reclothe us in our rightful mind. Our rightful mind is the one that knows God's love and responds out of that love in the face of our own suffering, difficult though that may, suffering of others, disaster, plague, pestilence, famine. It's all God calling us to right relationship in one way or another. And I offer that uh, with humility and for what it's worth as the way I work it out at this point in my life. As always, we respond to the gospel prayerfully, but today in celebration, we prepare to bring new people into this reality that we know, the reality of God's love, the love that made us for love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.